Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm gonna we're gonna carry on with this manager theme and we're gonna deal with Jose. Now Jose is one of my favourite managers of all time. Now, obviously you have to sort of <coughs> clarify a statement like that. So I'm not supportive of everything that Jose Mourinho has ever done. There are a lot of things that he's done, especially with uh, Eva Carnario, that was just wrong. It was just utterly wrong there, there isn't really a way of defending it you know, there are probably reasons behind it but none of those reasons are really good enough to behave in that way and it was wrong but then I always tend to think about it is, is with a lot of the criticism of uh, Jose in that regards to some of the sort of the dark bits of Jose is that <clears throat> Ferguson did quite a lot of things that were very similar and I think in a way because Culturally, the way how Sir Alex Ferguson was portrayed, especially in England and maybe Britain to a wider extent, was that because he was Scottish and there was a long history of Scottish managers and there's a perception of Scottish people in English thought process. In other words, our, our idea of a Scotsman is this sort of angry, you know, tense or grouchy person in a way he just fitted in with that he was almost like our stereotypical scott that's exactly what we think they're supposed to act and be like which in a way meant that a lot of the time people said oh yeah well that's sir alex ferguson what do you expect whereby i think with Mourinho, because the way how he came into the english game as the special one as this youthful young you know well-dressed erudite confident intelligent all the rest of it I think as a result, there was always going to be a certain amount of blowback. And that when he's sort of gone on later on in his career, when there's just no way that you could keep up that kind of youthfulness. In other words, if you're in the league for, you know, 15, 16, 17, nearly basically he's now been sort of in some form of high-level management or assistant role pretty much since the mid-90s. He's not going to remain youthful and as dazzling and as interesting as, you know, he was at the beginning. That's understandable. There's people like Klopp's come through, people like Pep Guardiola, all these different managers who are now, you know, who are now current and now interesting. And obviously, as a result, that sort of dimmed his, you know, star a little bit. And so people are now a little bit more likely to judge. Whereby no one really ever held Sir Alex Ferguson in that kind of fashion esteem. He was always, you know, wearing the, the sort of the, the suit and the big bulky jacket and so was, you know and he was never really as artful in the media he was just tough-minded manager in the media and he played mind games and all the rest of it so as a result there was always going to be that blowback which Ferguson never had because he was never held in that sort of cultural esteem as Mourinho so for me personally going into the, the actual sort of bulk of the, the podcast I see Mourinho as the second most important person ever in Premier League history. Now, the most important person is Eric Cantona. Mainly because, counterintuitively, he's not actually that important in world football, especially French football. Now, you take Cantona, brilliant, gifted player, kind of goes through a few different French teams, always sort of gets himself pushed out of the club or sold just because they've had enough of him. And he's a bit of a bad boy, and eventually he just manages to 
essentially piss off just enough people in French football that actually going across the channel is actually the next, you know, is the best career move that he can make. So, but even even when he becomes French captain and loses it after the Kung Fu kick at Crystal Palace, in the end, what, what happens next? Well, France get to the court semi-finals of Euro 96, lose on a, unluckily on a penalty shootout to the Czech Republic. They then win World Cup 98 at home. They then win Euro 2000. It's a sort of golden generation. They've got Claire Fontaine. And so as a result, Eric Cantona just disappears. In other words, his best years are in England. You know, his spell in the national team is, you know, you have the defeat to Bulgaria, which knocks them out of World Cup 94 and all the rest of it. In other words, he's not, you know, he's just not considered that important. Which is why he's doubly important for us. In other words, he is the person that really best exemplifies the rise of the Premier League. The last season before the Premier League kicks off, he's a, the, the sort of a fulcrum player at Leeds, and they go on and win the football champ, or the championship, you know, Division One. It then becomes the Premier League. He moves to Manchester United, and then Manchester United explode under Ferguson. And he's kind of the talisman for that. And in a way, he, he sort of shows the first few years. In other words, his best performances are in the Premier League. They're not in Europe. He doesn't play particularly well in Europe. You know, Manchester United, even you know, in the dominant early 90s period, they're nowhere near as good as Ajax. They're nowhere near as good as Milan and Barcelona. And it shows. And even in Europe, even in the, le- the earlier rounds of it, Cantonal doesn't play brilliantly well. So in other words, a lot of the rest of Europe don't really see. After the Kung Fu kick, he never plays again for France at any international level. So, in other words, he becomes one of our own. He, um, he is the Premier League, in a way. He shows you what will, the future will happen. You will have these geniuses, these characters, and they'll come from different parts of the thing. In other words, you don't really... you know, It's inevitable with the money that goes into football, the overall game of football, and, you know, English culture and the way how it works is that it's always inevitable that there will be foreign players coming in. It's cosmopolitan. You've got London, you've got Liverpool, Manchester, even Birmingham. They've all they're always going to attract people and the competitiveness and the desire of these English teams to succeed in Europe. And the fact that they've created the Premier League in of itself. It's a commercial aspect. The only idea is we want to make money, we want to make it more interesting. The idea at the beginning sort of was, oh yeah, we'll knock it down to 16 or 18 teams. We'll do it to benefit, you know, the English national team. But that gets jokes so quickly. Because in the end, Cantona ends up at United. And it's, it's not a coincidence. They're the team that becomes commercial first. They're the ones who rebuild their stadium first. They're the ones who have the first megastore. The first people who have changed their kit every season, who have a third kit. He is part of that. It's when you know the Kung Fu kick becomes front page news. He's also back page news. He is a sign of commercialization. He's someone who appeals to everyone, to all of the United fans, all dotted all over the country. It's not provincial. It's actually aimed at young children, women, everyone to try and watch football. It's no longer just like in the 80s and late 70s, a load of men all on these crumbling terraces. It's now family stands. It's all seated. And so, in effect, he's brought 
he's part of the reason brought football to the collective. He is brilliant. He is controversial. He has some charisma, although probably not quite as much intelligence as he thinks he does, but no one cared because he, in effect, nobody else did. In other words, Klinsman comes, does brilliant enough, but it's a season. It doesn't really change anything. Tottenham do a bit less well the season after, but round of finishing about the same sort of place. You know, it doesn't really move. He's just a great striker who had a good season in England, but he'd had good years in Italy, he'd done well in Germany, he goes to Bayern Munich, they go win the UEFA Cup. It's just another step on the thing, whereby for Cantona, Man United is everything to him and his career. It's where he plays best, it's where he's most important, it's where he's most loved. So in the end, he's basically the emblem of the post-isolationism, the start of the Premier League, where you know Britain goes back into playing Europe, or England goes back into playing European football. You know he's the antidote to that. He is gifted and foreign. He shows you where English football is going, but he's not inevitable because he is different. He comes before the Premier League starts. You know he's he certainly fits into the. Even someone who is so stereotypically French, he actually fits into Britain a lot better than he does Europe. In other words, we're you know he has the, you know he gets chucked out of basically chucked out of French football because he attacks the elites because he is has this sort of violent streak. Whereby actually in this country, although there is outrage at the Kung Fu thing, Man United fans don't actually desert him. English football allows him back in, and he carries on hero-worshipping him. That's where the, you know, the, the first game he comes back. It's a Sky game. It's Man United-Liverpool. You know, everyone who could watch that game was interested. It was hyped for weeks in advance. Whereby, actually, really, what it should be is someone who's committed a very serious criminal act, and yet he comes back a hero. He's marketed as this redemption and coming back as a hero. He has to score a penalty. Which is fascinating, which is in effect is, is why it's, you know, and yet he, you know, he's the emblem of it. He, he is poor in Europe. He is misunderstood. He is a bit violent. I mean, part of the reason why there was an isolationism in English football to an extent was because of this post heisel ban, you know, because the fans were still, there were still lingering elements of it. You know, you have the 94-95 game in Ireland, the friendly, that gets called off 20 minutes into it because the fans are ripping up Lance Avard, throwing the seats on the pitch. And that's about the same time as Cantona has this, you know, moment where he literally launches into the crowd and Kung Fu kicks someone, who was basically just giving him a bit of grief because he'd been sent off for violent conduct. And this is where it ends. This is why it's fascinating, because it's sort of telling that he retires. He retires early. And the fun thing is, when, with his retirement, is is that he sort of says the you know the standard of falling out of love with the game and all the rest of it. But in effect, really, what it sort of is is the moment when the Premier League's adolescence ends. In other words, he is a symptom of English teams not quite making it in Europe. You know, they lose. In other words, I think one of his last contributions is they lose the European Champions League semi final against Dortmund, sort of an unsightly, unfancy Dortmund team. And then he sort of retires in a shock way. He's, he's young. But he doesn't do anything else. He doesn't go into management. He does a few years of beach football. And, you know, he's done the acting side of it. But it doesn't amount to a huge amount. It does, you know, it's just, he's there. He's almost a figure. And he talks about United. He does a few Nike adverts. But you know, he's, he doesn't kick on in the same way that if you think of the when Zidane quits football. 
you know, he, he provides a bit of sporting directorship at Real Madrid. He becomes a, a youth team coach. He be, he's the assistant manager to Ancelotti. When they win the Champions League, he then becomes manager and wins the Champions League himself. He's you know carved out a role for himself in football. You know that is just twenty five times as more than what Cantona's done. So when Cantona leaves, he you know his last action is they lose, shocking not shockingly but they lose against Dortmund. They aren't able to kick on. You know, when is England going to actually have English teams? They may not have been dominant for so many years, and yet how can they not make you know take that last step in Europe? And then he sort of retires. And really what that means is is that that era has ended. In other words, with you know, considering if you think of him as the talisman, so how important he is to United, it's interesting that within two years they actually win the Champions League. Finally they won the Euro European Cup because it's a whole new generation. People that you know, had the advantage of working with, you know, so in other words, the young players, so you're talking about, you know, to an extent Keane, but, you know, more likely, but Beckham, Scholes, this new generation who's been inspired, who've, you know, used, you know, Eric Cantona, learn off of him, but then they kick on because they're the new generation of English players and British players, and they go and win the, the, the European Cup. It's not Cantona because that's not really what he stands for. In other words, once the tide starts to turn, once it's clear that you know they are inevitably going to win the Champions League, it's not really his fight in some ways, which is why, in effect, he retires a bit too early. He's not there to whip at the new camp when they win because it, it's not quite, in effect, in some ways, it's not right for him to be there because that's not what he stood for. He stands for you know, the, the start of the Premier League and then the next stage. And this is why there's a gap, really, in effect, between... Mourinho and Cantona because in effect what it is is that Mourinho replaces Cantona in that public in other words someone who who basically everyone in the 90s knew Eric Cantona you didn't even have to be a huge football fan you didn't even have to like football but you knew Eric Cantona played for United and that United won and it was a similar thing when Mourinho turns up in other words there's a gap between let's say 97 and when Mourinho first pitches up in sort of 04, 05 there's seven years, and no one really replaces him. There's no one that really jumps to mind that, that replaces that kind of public persona and the importance to how pe English people, English and British people perceive themselves and the Premier League. So when he turns up, you know he's confident. Well, obviously, and what it is is that the Porto Champions League win is the sea change. It's the last year before basically Real. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, they all start kicking on. They all start the, the, sort of the rise to where they are now. And you could add to an extent Juventus, but it's, at that time it's probably more AC Milan. But those super teams of that kind of 10-year period where basically Juventus win virtually, you know, hoover up a load. It's either Real or it's Barca. Of course, you have to add in Atletico, but yeah, that's a relatively recent occurrence. You've now got PSG in France. So all of those teams start developing and Bayern in they all start developing. They all now are dominant. In other words, you expect those sort of teams to be there or thereabouts in the final eight of the Champions League year in, year out. Whereby that's not the case. It ends up being Monaco and Porto. 
that's the last one. That's the really almost in effect the last of the Mohicans moment. In other words, every single year after that, it has been big teams with big, you know, big budgets, big managers, big players. And so the, sort of the cup run part of the Champions League, whereby you could get a Marseille in 93, where you could get a Red Star Belgrade in 91. That sort of era is, is just the past. In other words, you can't really see a world in which Monaco and Porto have a Champions League final. Yeah, Mar- Monaco done brilliantly well this season, but you think, well, maybe even if they did win it, how many of those players would they keep? Would they be able to recreate it they're just a, a fantastic coincidence of money and young players who've been you know and a good manager with Porto I don't see them getting back to a Champions League final anytime soon so really what happens is and this is where Mourinho's interesting is that he's semi-established at this point he's never managed in a top five European league He's had the success, he's got an element of track record, obviously as assistant manager at Barcelona and all the rest. He's had an apprenticeship under some fantastic managers, and he's had some success, and he's taken Porto to the UEFA Cup, which is what you would expect a team of that size to do. He's then taken on, and it's a cup run. It's, you know, he, you, there is pressure at Porto, you have to win. You know, week in, week out, and all the rest of it. But you have all of the resources, the players, and if you're a great manager, as Mourinho is, even if you're not necessarily as great, but you have elements of that talent, as in AVB, you can do so. You can push on and win as much as your talent dictates. But And the Champions League is really more of a... It's more of a cup run. In other words, there's always this... This is my favourite one. There's always a room. It's not quite a rumour, but... It's sort of apocryphal, but you can sort of believe. There's a, there was a lot of rumours at the time that had Porto got knocked out by Man United in that sort of second round that he would have moved on and there was rumours that he would have taken the Spurs job. Now you think about it. That would be a sort of a sensible kind of move. You know, he's taken Porto as far as they can. They've lost to United. It's close run thing, but he can go there, kick on at Spurs for a couple of years... And then, you know, take on a bigger job. But obviously, Pedro Mendes scores a deflected winner with a couple of minutes to go. Obviously, you're not going to leave while you're still in the Champions League. By the time you've won the Champions League, you're not going to Spurs. Common sense. And then the Chelsea job. So he's semi-established. He's got the reputation. But at the same time, this is his first huge, important job. Whereby there are expectations. And people are really asking themselves, in some level, can he do it? So in other words, not only is he establishing himself, he's also establishing Chelsea. They've not won the title. They've been sort of nearly men a few times. Seemed always seemed in the late 90s, early 2000s. They always seemed to be sort of second or third favourites. And you'd think, oh, if they all put it together, they could have a chance. But they never seem to have that sort of consistency. And then you have the sort of the Monaco game, where they should have won that, that semi, but they don't. And they, they collapse in kind of painful circumstances which sort of inevitably leaves Claudio to be kicked out and so as a result it, you end up with the situation where he has this electrifying impact when he gives first press conference I am the special one so in the end the, it comes in this sort of in effect holy trinity if he wins Chelsea wins if Chelsea wins the Premier League wins and as fans of the Premier League 
we at home win. So in effect, it is basically sort of, we all sort of collectively bought a share in Jose and what Jose was selling and what the, what he's, what the promise of it was. In other words, really what he, when the second he turns up in the Premier League, it's really a battle for which team is going to win the second Champions League from the Premier League. Is it going to be United? Is it going to be Chelsea? Could it be Arsenal or somebody else? And that's huge. That's what he kicks off. And then not only does it go on from there, English teams win a lot. You have an all-English final. You've got Liverpool win. Arsenal get to the final. Chelsea get to a final. Chelsea inevitably win. You know, they win a Champions League. And through that sort of four or five-year period, English, the Premier League is really at its sort of... First time, it's the peak league. And he's a huge part of that. And so that's why he explains the middle period, the Premier League, as Cantona explains the beginning. It's hyper-competitive. It's brash. It's increasingly wealthy. It's knocking on the door at Serie A and La Liga. The two sort of really firm, oh, we think we are the best league in Europe. And so as a result, he, he becomes one of our own because where, he's, where he proves himself, where he basically turns up and knocks off Ferguson and the European elites at the same time. You have to remember, we, you're, we're now in 2017. We've now been used to Mourinho winning everywhere he's gone. It was no guarantee that he was going to be successful at Chelsea. It was no guarantee that it was going to happen so quickly. That the all of the, found, the cornerstones of what he built at Chelsea would lead them to not only, you know, after he's left, not only them getting to a Champions League one, nearly winning that one, but then winning it a few years later, when really they're nowhere near as good as they were under Mourinho, and no, and not even as good as they were where they were when they got to the final for the first time. You know that sort of legacy. It wasn't inevitable. He had you know a team that were nearly men, team that didn't always win when the pressure was on, and yet. He does it, and he does it really quickly and spectacularly. And there are negatives to it. This is the thing. I mean, as much as I love Mourinho and love what the, some of the stuff he did, especially the first time round, you know, the style, the, the confidence and the attitude and all the rest of it, is that he also explains some of the bad parts of the second, you know, middle period of the Premier League's history. You know, they're oligarchs. You know, there's increasing media, and that's good and bad in its own ways. In other words, the media are constantly creating controversy. He's arrogant. <laughs> Some of the, you know, you end up with people like, you know, Rafa the Gather, and, it, it, you know, increasingly it's, you know, win at all costs, and, and there's, you know, referees are under a lot more pressure than they were in sort of Cantona's generation. And so... And also, you, you have to also remember that, you know, there was if he hadn't worked straight off the bat, there's no guarantee that Roman would have kept him. It's not as if Roman, you know, had to shoot, and especially, you know, the first few years of Roman, as if he had the patience to wait him out. <laughs> you know, all he is is someone who's, you know, had success at Porto. That's not a shock. Lots of managers have had success at Porto. And then, had he not worked at Chelsea, then all, of, all people could have said is, well, you know what, that was... You know, the previous time when a team like Monaco and Porto could do it. He's had a cup run. He really isn't as special. It's, the braggadocio is, is that actually if it doesn't work, 
he all he was was the translator at Porto that goes to Barcelona to be the translator and was the assistant manager under Louis van Gaal and has success. In other words, there's there's nothing underpinning it really other than his own genius. In other words, if it all fell apart, would he get another job in major football? In other words, the Premier League or one of the top five? Or would he have to go back to Portugal? And would it just be a flash in the pan? You know, in the same sense that, you know, like, sort of Cluffy's first run at Derby. And when he then goes to Leeds and it fails, and then he goes to Brighton. And the only way he gets back into sort of top-level football is second division Nottingham Forest. It's because everywhere else has said no. England have said no. And that's the thing. They're... So, and this links into when, when he actually leaves Chelsea, when he's sacked the first time round. And it's, it's sort of sad because English football misses him. And he's become a representative of, of you know, the Premier League's newfound confidence and success. It's the first real time that they get a great manager who's at the beginning of his career, who decides not to go to Spain or Italy or even Germany. He's gone here. He's not just gone to Man United because they were winning everything. He's gone to Chelsea to build Chelsea and build himself, and it's worked. So when he leaves, and there's this sort of gap, there's this sort of depth, there's no one who can replace him in the same way when Cantona leaves. There's no one really to replace him as sort of the face of the Premier League or the face of Man United. What happens is is that because we've all sort of emotionally brought a share into him and he's become one of our own, he's in he's become in such an important figure in the Premier League and its you know, growing history, is that when he's at Inter and then he has success at Inter and then latterly at Real Madrid, it's sort of part of our success. It's someone showing, look, this is a Premier League guy, a guy who's built his you know, legacy on the Premier League and he's gone to Italy and been successful. Not just really successful, he's won the European Cup, he's won the treble, he's gone off and knocked off Pep Guardiola's Barcelona and he's kicked on at Real Madrid. Whereby sort of the early generation of the Premier League, no one really does that. In other words, when Steve McManaman takes a free transfer and leaves Liverpool and goes to Real Madrid, he's a role player, an important role player, but you know, it's Raul, it's Casillas, it's Zidane, it's all of those sort of players who are the important ones and you know to it's those players. It's, you know, Pierre. All of those sort of players are the key sort of Galacticos. You know, Roberto Carlos, Macaulay. All of those people are important. And McManaman fits in and, you know, does well. But he's not... They would have won without him. You know, they would have probably been the same level of talent. You know, they would have just brought in somebody else to do a similar sort of role. You know, it's... The, the first generation of Premier League managers don't go abroad and have tremendous success like, you know, Terry Venables or Bobby Robson. So it's really the first time that someone bona fide Premier League has gone out and had success because we've all grown up on Italian football in the late 80s and 90s on Channel 4, on the great Juventus teams, the great AC teams. And it just felt, you know, uh, you know Paul Ince, when he goes there, he goes to Inter. You know, the, the big money team that spend a load, but they don't win. Whereby AC and Juventus, they win. And so it's it's a huge thing. It's basically a way to, of the Premier League showing that it can compete. And that what it creates can win out in Europe. And so... 
what you then have to start doing when you when you think of Mourinho is, well, how does he end up where he ends up, and what are the prerequisites? In other words, when we discuss Pep Guardiola, it's pretty obvious what the prerequisites are. Virtually an unlimited transfer budget. You need to be in the Champions League. You, your stadium needs to be fantastic. Your training ground needs to be fantastic. Your youth system needs to be fantastic. The the players you have have to be expect. You know they have to be a certain quality and a certain price tag. That's how he manages. He will not manage you for ten years. He will manage you for sort of three, four years, and he will play his football and do that. That's that's pretty obvious. So that's why you know he turns down X number of jobs until he gets the one that fits his profile perfectly. Same sort of thing you get with uh, Jurgen Klopp. Um, you know, it's no surprise that the, you know the two major clubs that he has managed have both had passionate you know fan bases. You know that sing you'll never walk alone. It fits him. It fits what he does. Whereby if you stuck him at Man City, his stick probably doesn't quite work in the same way. So in other words, he always has to win immediately. You know, so when he's at Porto, Chelsea, Inter Milan to an extent, Real Madrid definitely, Chelsea again, and Manchester United. It's a we have to win. But they all all those teams, you know, outside of maybe Porto, all have issues. We discussed what Chelsea had the first time round. Inter, it's Calcio Poly. In other words, you know, Juventus have been knocked down into Serie B. There, it's going to take them years to get back to where they once were. This is Inter Milan's opportunity. You know, AC, you know, AC are a little bit old. You know, that sort of team that you know sort of peaked in around the early two thousands. You know, the two thousand three when they beat Juventus on penalties at Old Trafford in Champions League final, lost to Liverpool, but then you know got revenge about them a couple of years. That team's a bit long in the tooth. The decline is sort of sitting in AC Milan that is still pretty much going on today and is only being slightly reversed now from a much lower level. It's their opportunity. It's their window. They've hired Mourinho. This is it. If we don't probably grab hold of it, this thing may... You know, you may never... You have to mark my way a generation or two for it to ever happen again. You know, he goes to Real. They've been knocked out of the Champions League round of 16, five years in a row for the amount of money they spent, for the amount of managers they'd gone through and they were behind Barcelona massively in terms of football in terms of trophies you know you've now got Man United where he's at they're desperate to get back in contention you know mismatch squad and just the emphasis to get into the Champions League because of the finances to it in other words well if they don't get in then their the debt rises all of the advertising revenue is all based upon Champions League football. So in other words, the sponsorship deals get reduced by 25% if they're not in the Champions League. So there's always this backbone. And he's always coming up against established teams. When he goes to Chelsea the first time, you have Wenger, who's been there for years at Arsenal, who's been able to build everything. He then builds it virtually, you know, in effect, builds his own stadium. You've got Sir Alex Ferguson, who's been there for years. All of the you know, infrastructure is there. When he's at Real, it's Pep Guardiola, who's been there for years, and they're at their sort of peak, just as he's on sort of nearly on the way out. And at Inter, you've got AC and Juventus, who've come back in, who are always sort of there or thereabouts. You've got Roma as well. And even when he goes back to Chelsea, when he goes back and he's at Man U, you've got City. You've, you've now got Spurs. You've got Liverpool. You, all of these teams 
who are usually have spent maybe a bit more money, who are just a bit more ready to be successful than the, the second Chelsea team he picks up. In other words, when he's Chelsea manager, he's sort of relying on a misfiring Torres, you know, the ghost of Samueto, and various other sort of mismatched pieces, you know, a really young, callow De Bruyne, all of the rest of it, and he's got to win. It's like, um, I've got friends, two Chelsea fans, and one of the things that always fascinates me is that they always talk about that first year, how, you know, pretty much, you know, when Rodgers nearly won the title with Liverpool, and Man United, Man City won it sort of by default, by just being the team down the stretch who didn't fade the, the, the least who just kept it on an even keel, won the games they should have done. So in other words, when Chelsea lost to Norwich, when they lost to Sunderland, and in effect the title, had they been more consistent, would have been theirs. But they're, they're always mentioned like, well, why didn't we win that title? That's the thing. In other words, rather than say, well, you know what, we were in the title race until mid to late April, you know, we consolidated, got to the semi-finals of the Champions League, it's more like, well, actually, what did you what did you not do then? What did you do for us? Because you think the first season works, even if they there's no sort of trophies at the end of it, the next season they win the League and Cup double. And so, you know, even that shows you the sort of pressure that he's under. I remember at the start of this season when he lost a couple of games and people, you know, there was all these articles saying, well, ah, oh, the, the, the thrill is gone. He's nowhere near the person he once was. And it's just sort of like, well, he's taken on this really awkward Man United squad that, you know, three different managers have put in all this money He's and they've not really bought in concert. In other words, some of the players that Van Hull have brought, you know, in effect, it's one of the funny things if you look at Man United's transfer work is, is that from when, take away maybe Moyes because Moyes is in a really awkward position because he's trying to restructure their transfer policy on the hoof and in the end, just picks up really, you know, signs Bellaney, which is just that's a, that's a different sort of issue. That's that's more down to David Moyes sort of panicking and the chief executive being really green and new, and them just not being able to get it around. When you start looking at sort of Van Hal, he spends a load of money on sort of Schneiderlin, David Blind, all of these sort of players who they've all got quite big reputations. They all cost quite a bit of money. In other words, no one really goes to United during that period cheaply. Even uh, when, you know, Moyes' second transfer window, he spends sort of, about, was it, 43 million on Wan Matter. So they're all talented players. They've all got good reputations. But they're not all, you know, they're not all... What they're not is they're not built as a team. In other words, they're all just disparate parts of talent. And it's like, well... We've given you this two hundred and fifty million pounds. Here's this is two hundred and fifty million pounds of players. Now make that into a team. Which is just really the back to front way of doing it. In other words, you have a style of football, you use the resource you have at the moment, the youth system, and then you fill in the gaps where necessary. What it is is here is a bunch of talent, build a team, which is it doesn't really work, and that's where a lot of United problems. In other words, the success under Van Hal in the first season really comes down to he keeps them there or thereabouts, even if the football is just dirge. And then sort of round about Easter time, sort of March, April time, he fits, finds a starting lineup that works. They win five, six games in a row, sneak into fourth. That's not a long-term strategy. That's just, ah, it all clicked. It all worked. 
which then really leads to if if we if we go back to sort of Mourinho, in effect, he is really a victim of his own success because he's won everywhere. He has won in Italy. He's won in Portugal. He's won in England. He's won in Spain. There's always this demand, and because no matter how, even if he does win, it's never quite as he, he's never quite as young and as youthful and as brilliant as he was when he was at Chelsea and to an extent at Porto or even sort of to maybe you push it on a little bit at Inter. It always now comes back like oh, yeah, well, we've seen you you know tough out a team. It's a bit like when he won the title, you know, in his second season in his second spell at Chelsea. There was a lot of it like, well that's pretty much what a Mourinho team does. It wasn't anywhere near as exciting. You know, they just he bought players early, fitted into his sort of schematic performed brilliantly well made the first I suppose maybe four six of the season the last kind of third was a bit grim but they did what they had to and won the title the point is is that no one ever really criticized Ferguson because if he didn't done something similar because that was really what Ferguson did you know the mid 90s the late 90s early 2000s a few of them, you know Ferguson teams won really big and dominated the whole year but a lot of them times it was you know, squeaky bum time. They they just won more games than anybody else from about February the fourteenth onwards, and that would win them titles. Whereby all their other rivals would collapse. You know, Keegan in the nineties, a couple of the Arsenal teams in the late nineties, early two thousands, that sort of thing. And this is where, if you compare him to any other sort of great manager, is just how different he is. In effect, when when you look at Sir Alex Ferguson, his managerial career in, in basically totality is Aberdeen and United. That's where he had his success. Those were his team. If it was north of the border, yeah, he, you know, managerially, it was Aberdeen. If it's south, it's Man United. Yeah, he did, he did manage a bit in the 86 World Cup because the manager had died. But, you know, in effect, that was just someone had to do it. He did it. <laughs> you know, Arsene Menger has... Monaco and Arsenal. They're hit. That's his club. That's it. The thing he's built. That's why there's a Sir Alex Ferguson stand at Man United, where the North Stand used to be, and why there will have to be some kind of statue, something to to Wenger when he leaves. Pep Guardiola has Barcelona. Youth team, captain, player, manager. Wherever when he goes back to Barcelona, he's a hero. Even Carlo Ancelotti, who's who's sort of moved about just as much as Mourinho, they've managed the same teams quite a few times. Even he has, oh, I had my brilliant career at AC Milan, had that sort of un- semi-unsuccessful spell at Juventus. Then I took over, came back to my hometown team in AC Milan, won a load, and that's his team. But and that's the way how Mourinho is somehow different. He doesn't really have a team. You know, in other words, he manages Benfica first in Portugal. And he resigns because, after a few days, a couple of weeks even, I think it actually might have been six games. Correct me. Now, he leaves because the president has made a load of promises. The president hasn't kept them. So he ends up at Porto. It's not because necessarily Porto were his hometown team. It's because it's a good job. He's you know done well at the lower part of the... You know, Portugal League. He now has taken on this role. Now he goes to Chelsea because that's the op- best option at the time that was open for him, and he has this success. 
and you know he's loved by the fans but in effect what while he sets a lot of the groundwork for the success that happens after he leaves people like Lampard Terry Abramovich were all there before him in other words or he is a key catalyst and in effect has built some of the, the key elements of what makes Chelsea successful even now he's still he's not the sole architect in the same way that Ferguson can claim well from 1985 I, 86 I take over you know get rid of some of the boozy players you know bring in some of my own players and then the kids come up from the youth system and then boom we have this wonderful, glorious stretch. And, you know, when I turned up here, there was terracing. The, you know, the stadium was big, but it was you know, a bit long in the tooth. By the time I leave, it's the biggest club ground in England. Same thing that, you know, Wenger has. You know, well, I've built this and this. I've changed this. I've kept, you know, the back five. I managed to lengthen their careers a couple of years. I took us to a Champions League final. And here's this massive stadium and the beautiful training grounds of London Colney. This is what I have built. Mourinho is a part, but he's not the sole creator. In other words, the season before, you know, Chelsea are well up there in the, you know, the Champions League race. They get to the Champions League semi-finals. In other words, even if they hadn't brought in Mourinho, somebody else would have taken that job and would have had success. You pump enough money into it, you will get success. That's what Man City has shown us. But he doesn't have a, a, a team. So, in other words, he never has the situation where he can really stay for... In other words, even Ferguson has the odd year or two in the 90s when they don't win. They sort of retool and then come back and do even better. And there's that kind of spell just sort of roundabout Mourinho turns up when actually he really has the, the first sort of major kind of refit of the Man United team when you thought, ooh... Has he stayed a bit one too many years? Can he pull this round? Does he have the energy to create another, maybe like the fourth or fifth great United team he, under his command? And he does that. But Mourinho never has it. He never has the ability, you know, with the, you know, the sort of acquiescence of the fans, ownership and everyone else to really do that. In other words, whenever, it, you know, if he'd, if he'd gone into Chelsea the second time around with a different mandate maybe if they'd if Roman had said well you know what Jose the first two years doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you don't even qualify for the Champions League what I want is a young bright the next Chelsea team that can win for five six seven years in a row so that all we need to do once in a while is whip out the checkbook and if we can't find a left back in the youth system or can't find a left back in the Premier League we'll sign whoever the best left back in the world is which means that then you would have sort of developed, you know, De Bruyne. You'd have developed Lukaku. You know, all of those players. You might have even developed Bertrand. And maybe for the first couple of years, Chelsea wouldn't have been as high. But if those players all kicked on, as they all have done later on in their careers, then you could add in the, the lost his cheeks and all the rest of it. And you might have a situation where which would be more sort of analogous to... You know, the United team of the 90, mid, nine, mid to late 90s. So in other words, where they got rid of Pallister, Bruce, Schmeichel. All of those sort of players moved on. Sparky Hughes, Kanchelskis. And they were replaced by people who were exponentially better. Who may not have looked better the first few months. Like you know the famous Alan Hansen. You'll win nothing with kids because you lost 3-1 at 
Aston Villa on the opening day of the season, but the long, you know, they then become the new Lampard, the new Terry, the new Dropper, those sort of key players. But he doesn't really have that because, as we've said, the fans are like, well, why didn't you win the league this year? You have all the opportunities, but that team is clearly a mess. And that actually he's just probably pushed them a little bit beyond where they were capable of, which is why you have to then bring in Costa, you bring in Fabregas, suddenly then, you know, the team look a lot stronger, better, win the League and Cup double. Even at United, we said, that they, they, you know, they were criticising them in the first 10 games because they weren't looking like a Mourinho team. Well, that's what they are. They're a work in progress. They're an extraordinarily expensive work in progress, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we've seen the Madrid teams that have been extraordinarily expensive and been complete messes. So he's never really had... He's never had the luxury of time of developing in the way that Pep Guardiola does to an extent at Barca, where he's the youth team coach who then becomes the manager, who then brings up all the players, gets rid of some of... You know, he gets rid of... You know... Yaya Torre. He gets rid of some of the other players who were done brilliantly well for Barcelona, but he thinks, well, actually, I don't really need Yaya if I've got Busquets. But then Mourinho never has that one because, you know, the pressure is, is in effect too high. He doesn't have a club of his own whereby he can say, oh, I played for you, or I man, you know, he's never been given the time to ever really build anything long term. It's just, we've hired you. Because we want to win, which is what Chelsea did the second time round. You know, yeah, there was elements of um, wanting to get the good times back, but it wasn't. It was more on the lines of we don't have a manager, you don't have a team, this could work. <laughs> and the fa- some of the fans would love it, and it would make an interesting press. But really, we want you to win. If you don't win, and if you don't win quickly, you're out. <laughs> Which is what happens. In other words, he has two decent years, you know, and then the second it drops off, within months he's out of the club. Which is why, which is why the Mourinho Wenger thing, the feud, because in effect, basically they're both jealous of each other. In other words, Wenger stays in one place. He's just been at Arsenal. He's had plenty of other opportunities. In other words, there's a someone wrote a book about him, and there's a whole chapter devoted to Arsene Wenger flirting with other teams. You know, he's flirted a few times with PSG. He's flirted a few times with Real. He's flirted with the England job numerous occasions. There's always part of him. He's even though, like a, when he was under pressure, it's like, well, I'll be a manager next season. It doesn't have to be at Arsenal, which is fascinating because you think, well, this guy has built everything at Arsenal. Is doing now doing everything in his power to stay. And yet at the same time has spent years you know, flirting with other teams. And so, in other words, he stays. In other words, he's basically put himself under the ideological thing of I'm going to win in this way at Arsenal, which often means for the, you know, pretty much from when the stadium gets built until a few years ago, having to work within his means, even if that was a huge wage bill, 75 pros on the staff and quite a bit of money that he'd got in the transfers, in and also the budget and that he didn't spend the budget some of the budget but that still wasn't quite the same kind of as if you were at Real or Man City or mm, Bayern Munich to an extent Barcelona where basically and Man United where here is the money don't worry about the the infrastructure side of it don't worry about balancing the books win so in other words 
you know, he hasn't really chased silverware. Mourinho is the opposite, whereby he has just gone from place to place. He's just proven that he can win in Italy, he can prove he's won in England, and he's won in Spain. He's won wherever he's gone to an extent. But it's, you know, in a certain respect, it, this is why sometimes he almost, I sometimes feel he looks beleaguered, because he's been at all of these incredible, stressful jobs where it's never been particularly easy. He's always had to win now and basically clear up some mess, whereby Wenger has never really had that level. He's just had, you know, he comes in at Arsenal at a really advantageous time. Pep comes in at a really advantageous time. Same thing you could really say, if, if like I said, the, the person that you can probably most compare him to is Ancelotti, but, you know, he comes in at AC Milan at a really good time. They've spent all this money. They've got you know, key players like Shevchenko. They've got Piper Inzaghi, Nesta. They've got just talent, all different parts of the field, huge budget. You know, when he goes to Chelsea, it's a Chelsea team that just needs some good management. He brings in the good management. They win. You know, he's gone to Real after, and they've spent a load of money and given him bail. You know, in other words, they sort of back Ancelotti a bit better in the transfer market than they do necessarily with Mourinho. So, in other words, he reaps the sort of benefits of Mourinho. You know, in the same way that he goes to PSG, someone's already sort of notched them a little bit along, and all he has to do is, you know, bring together all the money and all the players he's got and win, and it's the French League. He does that. Same things really happened to buy, and he's pitched up. You know, they're pretty much already a great squad. You know, he just needs to rejig a few things, and magically enough, they win. Compare that to Mourinho, he's coming in just a incredibly difficult jobs, pressurised jobs. So, in effect, if you think about it, and if you then look at the sort of the people who, the sort of the rejection for someone who's been so successful. It's really important to note that just a huge amount of people have rejected him. Chelsea have sacked him twice. Man United have repeatedly rejected him. You know, they chose David Moyes instead of Mourinho. That's mental. That's actually just the... You know, they deserved for the, for the Moyes thing to not work because they did. Why would you possibly chose someone who'd never won anything? You know, who'd lost the, cha the playoff final? For Preston, who lost the the FA Cup at Everton, that's pretty much it. That's not brilliant. You know, that's not winning the you know the Champions League and the treble. It's not beating Pep Guardiola's you know all conquering Barca team. It's just nowhere near. Who who would make a better United manager? It's going to be Mourinho. You know, Real Madrid. You know, sort of reject and get rid of him at the same time. Even though he's had to fight all of these horrible sort of player battles when he's dealing with, you know, he's dealing with Ronaldo. He's dealing with, you know, a declining, you know, Casillas. You know, he's got all of these older sort of players who, you know, realise that once they leave Real Madrid, it only goes downhill. And they've all got egos. And he's somehow got to... And he's not got huge support from the board. He's got more probably more support from the fans than he does the board. But then you've got the media. It's a very stressful job. Especially when... You know, whereby if you look at someone like Zidane. He's a legend. You know, he's definitely got... You know, he's in a better position to sort of manage those egos. And his squad that he gets is younger and a lot less egotistical. 
So, in, in, and this is where it comes down to. If if, if we're all described, if, if a low, if a generation of people, in other words, you know, I have grown up with you know the sort of Mourinho, you know, when I was in sixth form and Mourinho sort of first pitches up, and all through his career, I've got older. And if we're describing a, that sort of generation and sort of Chelsea fans and all the people that at some point have, have admired and enjoyed what Jose has brought to world football and specifically English football in the Premier League, if we say, as I said earlier, shareholders, you know, we bought a share, we're, that, we're, we're they're his shareholders. And so really, in effect, I'm going to put it to you that we're disappointed shareholders. In other words, because really we're almost disappointed because he can't be that 2005 Mourinho, he doesn't have you know the dazzling jet black hair, the suits, and all the rest of it. Sometimes I find, even I find myself watching a United game and thinking, "God, just put on a suit," and that's the problem. In other words, really, what we're saying is we want Jose to go back to being this happy, brilliant, young, charming manager with the world in front of him. So he's not had; he's been through all of these stresses, strains, and you know power battles and everything else. You can't possibly expect someone to behave like that, to just be that Mourinho. He's, he's matured, he's got older, and really we've massively resented it for him. You know, so in effect, we, we want him to be a 2005 caricature who makes English football dazzling and interesting, and then we go out and English teams start dominating in Europe like it was the 70s or 80s all over again. It's like I was reading this article about, um, it's a young writer... And um, he goes on a road trip, you know, before the uh, 2000 election with one of his colleagues. And they're trying to document it for this website. And part of the thing is that they have to go to Colorado and they're supposed to meet up with Hunter S. Thompson. So they describe it, they, they go to the bar, Hunter S. Thompson sort of ambles in and basically is the caricature of, that he's created for himself. You know, he is larger than life, does coke, rides a motorcycle, says outrageous things, takes them back to his home, which is in effect by that point a living museum to him, you know, himself and his writing and all the rest of it. And he gets them to read his own writing back to him. And what the guy said is, is that in the end, they're just as much to blame as him. In other words, he's trapped in his own creation of what his success and what people wanted him. So all these young writers have gone to sort of Woody Creek, Colorado, because they that's what they want. They want that caricature Hunter S. Thompson, which means that he can't be anything else, which is pretty much what we're doing to Mourinho. Basically, when he looks a bit scruffy and he looks angry, and he's playing sort of mind games, and it's us against the world, in effect, he's someone who's been rejected by all, you know, if he, you know, the closest that he's really had to a team other than Chelsea, where he was loved by the fans, but at the same time, it's still Roman Abramovich's club. You know, all of the managers after him, in varying degrees, had success. It's the closest, probably Barcelona. So I suppose when he came there, he was, you know, still just a translator, then becomes part of the coaching staff and then rises to assistant manager. But even that is a fairly tenuous thing. By this point, he's been with Bobby Robson at... Porto. He only spent a few years there. You know, he you know, he'd never played for them, you know, he'd never been part it's just was part of you know, it was a big part of his development, but that's still a fairly long stretch of the imagination because he you know, Barcelona, if you want to be a part of that, then it's they they were always gonna give the job to Pep Guardiola in comparison who even if he was ridiculously 
inexperience when he takes the job is that he is part of Barcelona and that's you know the importance of their history so in other words he was mentored and managed for by Johan Cruyff who's just the key brain trust in a player and a manager and as a sort of cultural icon for it so in other words it's inevitable that they would end up picking you know the Catalan who'd risen through La Misa, who'd captained the team who'd been a defensive midfielder a linchpin and then coached in the youth system then they would Mourinho who'd just come in you know at a sort of a period where you know they were start you know where Cruyff had left you know they picked Bobby Robson but they you know it was at least five six years before they get to the point where they're starting to win titles then culminates in Rijkaard winning the European Cup so you could even that it's see it's even if that if Barcelona were Jose Mourinho's team it's just a a tenuous link if you compare him to let's say Luis Enrique and Pep Guardiola so in fact he's always had that sort of those battles and he's been rejected and there's always this pressure on him so I'm not surprised I, I don't understand how you can sit there and be massively surprised if he does look you know tired if he does you know because the thing is well what is he supposed to do is he supposed to take a year out would it would a year out really you know change him would he then come back you know with you know sort of Grecian black hair and you know Grecian 2000 formula in his hair a, a wonderful suit and then come back with all the one-liners that we remember from then I, I just don't think that person's ever in effect going to come back so really what you have to do is and this is what I've had to do really to really get to the deeper part of Mourinho is to separate this sort of angry, stressed person who's been through the mill, who's been through one of the toughest industries at the highest level and won, and really what his actual brilliant skills as a manager, which is his, his ability as an analyst. Uh, there's two examples. It's the first time I ever came across Mourinho was in the summer um, when they'd won the UEFA Cup against uh, Celtic, even. And... Uh, that one of their strikers, Helda Postiga, scored 19 goals about, uh, I want to say, 36, 38 games. Brilliant, one of the highest rated strikers in Europe. Signs for Spurs. Bit, you know, relatively big money, about 6.5 million, which for a sort of 18, no, 19, 20 year old was big money. And he's a big deal because he was, you know, he'd come as one of the best talented attackers in Europe. And so they asked Mourinho how he'd get on. And you're basically expecting the coach to say something along the lines of, ah, oh, he's been brilliant for us. You know, it's a great opportunity for him. You know, I, I can't see any reason why he's not going to be, you know, one of the top five, ten strikers in Europe in the next five years. He instead comes out and says something along the lines of, oh, he's made a horrible mistake. You know, he doesn't suit English football. This isn't going to work out. And, you know, that so on and so forth. And it's just eerily prescient. In other words, Postiga doesn't have the, I suppose, the physique or necessarily the pace or the close control to really make it in England. You know, he scores a, a handful of goals, but it's more the chance he misses. He gets put through forward twice at Highbury, and each time he just has to round the goalkeeper off, and he'd become an instant Spurs legend. He fluffs both of the opportunities. It, he just has a sort of miserable year, and is basically sent straight back to Porto the next year. And he ends up having a, a relatively decent career, but it, it seems that he never quite ever got back to that sort of level of goal scoring. He ends up sort of coming back to haunt us in the 
you know, sort of Euros as one of those classic sort of Portuguese strikers who isn't doesn't isn't really doesn't score many goals but pops up once in a while in a key moment and his heads against England. And also what he's done with Rooney, you know, in other words, you know, everyone has taken his lead. In other words, he picks it up at United and the first thing he says, well, you know, Rooney's not a centre mid. <laughs> he's a striker, he can't do this, this and this. And he's put that thing to bed and he's managed him in an interesting way, which has meant that it's put Rooney in a position that if he was successful, brilliant, he would use him. If, on the other hand, he it doesn't work, as it hasn't really because of the injuries and the lack of performances, now we all know where Rooney stands. It's not become an issue. It's it's you know there's no no one's denying or putting any pressure on Rooney now. We know he's probably leaving. You know, at the end of the season, and you know it's interesting to note that really Gareth Southgate has taken on everything that you know, Mourinho has said about Wayne Rooney and done pretty much the same. Which could have been a huge media story. It could have been. You know, so many different you know, angles and stress and will he, won't he. And he really put it to bed very early on. And so that's the thing. When you take away the sort of mind game side of it and when he starts getting into and analysing football, that's where he's brilliant and interesting. That's where you sort of see the old Mourinho. The, you know, whereby what part of the reason we loved him was all the style and all the talk. But that really actually ended up, and this, oh, I'm the special one and all the rest of it. But what it actually overshadowed was his ability as an analyst, someone who basically can see a football pitch and really diagnose what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, who's good, who's bad, and all the rest of it. And that's what still I am, what I, what I find fascinating, what I want to know more of. You know, that's why I want to hear more from Mourinho than less. I, you know, the rest of it, the mind games, all the rest of it, I understand why that's there, but. I think this is the key question, you know, now coming into sort of the conclusion is really, I think we've, we've forgotten, because of his, this long-standing success, just how hard it must have been to someone who had no football career. He was, you know, at best, barely a semi-professional goalkeeper. You know, he, you know, he, learn, you know, he goes to university, he coaches at the, some of the lowest level, he becomes a translator to begin with. He then gets to the level where... You know, he ends up, you know, getting into coaching at a time. You have to remember, we're, we're in a generation where you've got people like, you know, Warburton, Rogers, but they don't, they wouldn't be there unless there was Mourinho's. You know, you don't get an AVB without Jose. And he's it, he's brought, he's allowed people who were non-football, people who weren't talented footballers, he's allowed them to get into management quicker. In other words, Arsene Wenger, who has a bigger football career than Jose does, who has to, you know, who then goes through, who is in a much easier position because, you know, the, the French football pyramid is a lot shallower. In other words, you can start off at a you know, semi-pro level and within, you know, four or five years, you can get to the point where you're, you know, at professional football, which is only ever really two, you know, sort of two divisions away from the champion that. He's doing it at, Porto, Barcelona, and then he then turns that in. You know, one of his first jobs is Benfica, which is you know just unparalleled for someone who hadn't had a professional career, you know, who wasn't the, you know, didn't have any familial connections into the game, 
And then he's added it. So in other words, people now believe that they can start their coaching career without playing professional football and young, and they can rise to manager just through their own talent. That's a fantastic legacy. It's, it's an underplayed legacy. Because I think we're so used to thinking of him as a, you know, Inter, Real, Chelsea, all these huge, man, all these huge teams. And while it's not a surprise that, you know, over the years he's become this different character, if you compare him to someone like Clough, and, you know, the, the end of Brian Clough where he's, you know, a broken man, is that at least Mourinho is still, you know, he's still winning. You know, he's still got a really fantastical shot of, you know, possibly winning the Europa League, which would then mean they've won the Europa League, the Carling Cup. You get the feeling that if you've given enough time and if, you know, he gets the right sort of players in the United, he really could be successful. I don't see him ending a broken man. I can see him in a few years' time possibly going to international football, and I think he could be just as successful as anybody else. You know, in effect, his us-and-them mentality does still have resonance. I th- I think it could work for United, and I think you know, even some of the sort of harsher treatments of players this season... Has you know that I think he's got more out of Mkhitaryan than if he'd basically been softly, softly, and you know I think Luke Shaw did possibly need a kick up the ass, but you know obviously you know you you there's only so far it can go, but I think at times we do have to look at the totality and the narrative of Mourinho's career in explaining why he might well be that kind of you know way, if you look at it. I think the difference between him and Wenger is really telling, is that Wenger's been at Arsenal all of these years, but how many times has he really beaten Ferguson? Well, you'd say maybe 97, 98. You'd say the 2001 double, and then the sort of Invincibles. I mean, but that's three times in X number of years that he was managing against that. In other words, he doesn't chat, you know, when Wenger wins, it's when everything goes right for his team. In other words, it never he's never won a title unless everything has clicked. So in other words, he's all you know, in other words, if you're Ferguson with Wenger, you think, well actually, next year they'll have a couple of injuries, suspension, and it won't quite work out. Then we can win the league. Whereby when Mourinho sort of turns up, he challenges them every single year. And he knocks, you know, Ferguson off of his perch quite quickly. You know, he goes to you know, Italy and he takes on AC, who have this long, beautiful history of winning, with, whereby Inter have always been the second team, the team that spend more money, but who never quite get there, who never actually have the end result. It's AC that win the titles, AC that win in Europe, and yet he then does something that AC have never done and wins the treble. You know, he goes and takes on Pep Guardiola and, you know, Pep Guardiola's replacements, like Tito Villanova and Martina, when they're at their, you know, near enough to their peak. And whereby, when he wins the, like, title for Real Madrid, it's basically, you could get 100 points and you still wouldn't win the league. Can you imagine the, the sort of stress that basically means that you don't have to get 100 points, it almost has to be 101 points. And even that might still not be quite enough. You know, so he takes on all of these challenging jobs, and he wins. And he takes on these rebuilds, like the second time at Chelsea, and, and now the Man United job. And it's like, well, 
how often has you know Wenger has never really ever put himself in that position to take on you know Pep Guardiola he's come across him a few times in European football but it's not over a whole year it's not you know not only getting into Milan to win but it's winning every single year that's the one thing that Wenger has never really done which you know that doesn't that's not to knock what he's done at Arsenal but you can understand that it's a lot easier for Wenger to be more sort of um to have more of an equilibrium because he's not on that he's more like sort of you know mid to late 80s Brian Clough whereby the football's good you know they get to the cup finals and they're there or thereabouts but they're not at the absolute pinnacle they're not at the apex of British football and he's not under huge pressure from the fans because you know same thing for Clough as it is for Wenger until you know a few months ago which Nottingham Forest fan is logically going to be able to have much of a go at Brian Clough? Same thing as an Arsenal fan. What really can you re- How much of a go can you honestly have at Wenger? Look at what he's given to you. Whereby Wenger, whereby Mourinho never has that. Mourinho always has. If you don't win, then that's just pure failure, and people will note that down. When when Mourinho doesn't win a title, or if he doesn't qualify for the Champions League directly from the top four, that will be noted, and then the pressure amps up the next year, whereby. You know, Wenger, on the other hand, has had really 10 years where there hasn't been anywhere near the level of pressure. He's always had the fans, the board, everybody else essentially, you know, backing him up. Which then leads to my final point. There's often this point that they call, you know, um, I remember reading this article and it's talking about how uh, Jose has sort of become the sort of dark prince. That when he gets rejected for the Barcelona job in favour of Pep Guardiola, that he comes with you with this insane anger towards Barcelona, and that he vows to sort of topple them off, and then that sort of almost prompts some of his defensive football, which it makes for an interesting story, and it makes for an interesting cover story, and you can see how you can write fifteen hundred words quite easily on it, but it doesn't quite fit because if you're then going to say, well, who does that then make Pep? The good prince, then. So if we were going to the Lion King, does that make, then, <laughs> is Simba, Pep Guardiola, is Scarface, Mourinho? Well, look at it this way. If you're going to sit there and say, well, as I said in my previous podcast, I see sort of Pep B. Guardiola as being the classical example of the manager of the 1%. He's someone who has all of these advantages that no mortal could have, you know, in terms of his football education, his football career, the people he knew, the way how he grew up in football and, you know, his name and how that's been so important in the aura he's created in his managerial career, which basically attracts people to want to be part of his teams. And the teams he manages are the top 1% teams. Well, Look at Mourinho then. He's someone who actually started out as an interpreter, basically someone who's got a teaching qualification, who's had to go up through uni and has had to start off at the absolute lows and then build himself up through his own talent with no safety net, which Guardiola always has. You know, there's always, oh, well, yeah, okay, you failed, but, uh, you know, you can have a second chance. Yeah, that kind of principle. In other words, when things don't quite work out at Bayern in the way that, you know, the the expectations were on there was more than enough people in the media and in public that you know gave him a you know a mulligan and said well go to man city and try it again 
Oh yeah, Mourinho never really kind of has the same thing. In other words, when he goes to United, it's only really because people like you know Sir Alex Ferguson and Sir Bobby Charlton have grudgingly accepted him. It's not that they really wanted him because they could have had him. You know when they chose Moyes, you know Van Hal. They've, they've chosen him almost in effect out of desperation. And the same similar sort of thing with Chelsea, in other words. Did they really, really want Mourinho back? Or did they actually, would they much prefer Guardiola? But once they can get Guardiola, Mourinho would do. And so, in effect, you know, when they said, oh, his defence football to try and knock Barcelona off their perch. Well, the point is, is that Barcelona football is the 1% of football. It is brilliant players playing at a world-famous club with, you know, virtually, with huge amounts of supporters, a scouting network across the world, everything that you could ever want to be a great football team. And so as a result, of course, the way how you would stop them if you don't have the same resources is some of the defensive football that interplayed when they beat them, and to an extent when Chelsea beat them in you know, both of those sort of you know statement games when Barcelona should have won both of those games, had more possession, more chances, and yet they're unable to finish the job off and Inter and Chelsea go through, Inter and Chelsea both win the Champions League, Barca don't. But then it leads into another thing. In other words, you know, not only has Mourinho actually managed to get, you know, the likes of you or us to have the potential to be world-class football managers if we have the same drive, desire and the brains and talent that he has, he's done the same for football. Do you get Atletico Madrid and Diego Simeone in the way how they play football unless you have someone like Mourinho who shows what, what being defensively tight, you know, what having that sort of schematic and then being able to beat bigger and better teams and teams that play more open football. You know, what he does at Real. Uh, even if it is Real Madrid, but the way how he shows that you can take down a team as good as Barcelona using certain elements. You know, you end up with, you know, what Chelsea, in other words, a team that you know, don't have anywhere near the history of Barca, Real, Bayern and the like. You know, you've got Athletic, you know, and Leicester. There's a lot of the elements of Leicester, you know, secondly, especially the second half season and especially in the Champions League. You know, keeping it, you know, back four, keeping it tight in the back, breaking quickly. <laughs> you know, he's really laid the foundations for those sort of teams to, you know, the 99% to fight up against these sort of ivory tower mega teams who are really corporations, you know, and how a small team can do it. And that's really what he's laid down. Uh, you can have a small team beat Barcelona over two legs in a Champions League semi-final. In other words, there's a possibility, although, albeit after the recent results the last few days, unlikely, where Leicester go to the Champions, go to the Champions League semi-final, second leg, at the new Camp, and beat Barcelona. Defending for their lives, attacking quickly on the counter-attack, nicking in a couple of away goals. And that Leicester manager could, in theory, be someone who's never had a football career who's basically just done all the, the coaching badges, has done the under six, the under tens, the fifteens, has gone from a small club to a medium to a bit, and has then won the Champions League. Isn't that a fantastic legacy? Even more than the suits and the special one and all of the rest of it, the superficialities of it, what he's actually given to English football 
and to you know the world football. Even if it's swimming in money, it still gives you the opportunity to go from nothing to everything. And that's the same for your football team and the same for coaches, managers, scouts and the rest of it. You know, that's the legacy that Jose gives you. Even if you take away everything he's ever said, you know, his legacy is winning. His legacy, his wider legacy, and what he's done to the Premier League is he's led the Premier League in a position where it's now in its sort of third act, where you've got five or six teams, and the, the other teams, these sort of the Leicesters, the Evertons, the Southamptons, all of these teams that at any given moment, even the West Ham to an extent, could go for the title, could qualify for the Champions League. Whereby all the rest of Europe is, well, in Netherlands you've got PSV and Ajax. You've basically got Monaco and Paris Saint-Germain in France. You've basically really only at the moment got Atletico, Real, Barca. You've only really got Juventus and Bayern. And yet you, the Premier League is this... You have six or eight great foreign managers. You've got a, a core of young, talented British managers in key positions. You've got eight teams, fight, you know, seven, eight teams fighting for Europe. And that's a, a fantastic legacy. And in, in a way, that's come down to Mourinho. And what is now fascinating is, is who is going to be the next face of the Premier League? Who is going to be the third, you know... Who's going to be the third most important person in Premier League history? And I think at some point, whoever that person is, whether it be a player, whether that be a manager, even an owner, is going to owe something to Jose. Good night.